As the Olympics opened in Beijing, the U.S. corporate media subjected viewers to wall-to-wall war-mongering propaganda targeting the government and people of China. Meanwhile, pro-Trump forces consolidate their control of the Republican Party, a new report on Israeli apartheid against Palestinians makes waves, protesters demand justice for Amir Locke, and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's February 8th, 2022. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing and register for our monthly seminar with Brian, which will be held next Monday, February 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern, a special Valentine's Day edition. Patrons at any tier, which starts at just $5 a month, can submit questions for Brian to address on the seminar and ask questions live during the discussion. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarek, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, let's start with the Olympics. All right, let's start with the Olympics. Let's contrast the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing with the Summer Olympic Games in 2008. And I don't mean contrast the games with the games. I'm talking about the media coverage. In 2008, AFT, the French news service, reported, quote, the press, meaning the Western press, was united Saturday in declaring the spectacular Beijing Olympics opening ceremony the best ever and a stunning display of China's newfound confidence. Okay, so that's the AFT talking about Western media. Here's the New York Times back again, August 8th, 2008 at 8.20 in the morning. And here's what the New York Times said. NBC is not providing television coverage of the spectacular opening ceremony from the Bird's Nest Stadium in Beijing. In fact, you won't be able to see it anywhere in the U.S. until tonight, but you can follow all that happens here on the Times Olympic blog live as it happens. So that sort of gives you a sense of what the media coverage was like back in 2008. Then in 2011, President Obama announced the American pivot to Asia. And since that time, the coverage on China, in China, about China, including Olympic Games in China, has devolved into, I would say, nothing other than a full-scale demonization of the country. And in fact, the opening ceremony coverage by NBC, and let's remember, NBC paid a lot of money to get the rights to cover these games. 
they were on the hot seat because they obviously thought a lot of people, you know, hundreds of millions, perhaps a billion people will watch the Olympics. That's good for NBC business. But the obligatory, now obligatory demonization of China by all who covered China from the Western media also meant that NBC had to, in fact, attack China at the beginning of the opening ceremony. So unlike 2008, when the media was raving about the Olympics in Beijing, the media coverage has been awful. And we have a number of audio clips, but 35 minutes into their coverage in the opening ceremony, again, we had Savannah Guthrie and some pundits on the show. I want to play, though, a couple audio clips because NBC actually made a video against China to insert in its news coverage or sports coverage of the Olympic Games. So 35 minutes into the coverage, this is what the people watching NBC actually were subjected to. There's two clips. Let's start with the first. But seven years later, these games arrive with China more advanced and more powerful, with its place in the world growing ever more contentious. A primary issue, the U.S. government and human rights organizations have declared China's treatment of the Muslim Uyghur population in the northwest region of Xinjiang as genocide. All right. It's genocide, but that's no reason not to participate. The U.S. says we're going to have a diplomatic boycott of China because they're practicing genocide. That's the punishment for genocide. Anyway, let's hear the next clip. There are other concerns that have also contributed to this latest flashpoint between the U.S. and China, including escalation of crackdowns on pro-democracy sentiments and protests in Hong Kong. According to the U.S. State Department, China is using coercion and aggression to systematically erode autonomy in Hong Kong, undercut democracy in Taiwan, abuse human rights in Xinjiang and Tibet, and assert maritime claims in the South China Sea. Esther, I mean... That's the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong. They failed to mention Tibet, by the way. I don't know. I guess they'll catch up to that in the coming days. Anyway, Esther, you watch sports. It's pretty horrific. Not only was this opening ceremony ruined by this type of jingoistic, really over-the-top, really untrue rhetoric. I mean, you know, it would be one thing if people were laying out some legitimate concerns, like, for example, you know, like black NFL coaches being discriminated against or in this country or other things related to sports that really involved sports. But to bring this up, to drop this in like a bomb when people are trying to enjoy the opening ceremony, one of the few times when we get to see humanity from all over the globe come in sometimes in you know, special types of apparel representing their culture. This is a moment to kind of like see humanity united in a way. And to have this type of coverage from NBC was really ridiculous. I mean, they they kind of showed their hand a little in the Summer Olympics in Japan. They had the same type of commentary, but this was worse because it was in China. And Brian, Nicole, Walter, this was all through the weekend because uh, on Sunday, I had to hear Jake Tapper on CNN compare China to Nazi Germany and compare the, the use of the, the inclusion of an athlete of Uyghur descent to 
Hitler's inclusion of a Jewish athlete to deflect criticism of his fascist regime. So this was really over the top all weekend. Yeah. And what you're referring to, Esther, is that the Chinese government had a cross-country skier participate as one of the torch lighters of the Olympic cauldron. And so the NBC coverage, Savannah Guthrie said, it's so striking and so provocative by Chinese President Xi Jinping, and it sends a real message. You know, if the Uyghurs are included, that's a cynical ploy by the Chinese government to include the people who the U.S. says are having genocide committed against them. If the Uyghurs weren't visible, the Chinese would have been denounced for you know excluding them and oppressing the Uyghurs. But again, here's China. China is a multinational, multi-ethnic society. It has hundreds of ethnicities. So the Uyghurs are torchlighters. By the way, there was a Uyghur who was a torchlighter in the 2008 Olympics too. But because they've included this person, this cross-country skier, this is a cynical and striking provocation, says that great expert on geopolitics, Savannah Guthrie, in her NBC coverage. We have some other audio clips. I want to go to them, Nicole, if we can. Again, this is Savannah Guthrie and a couple of other pundits, including Andy Brown, formerly with the Wall Street Journal. He's the editorial director of the Bloomberg New Economy Forum, and he was a China editor with the Wall Street Journal. So they had him on also to denounce China at the very beginning of the opening ceremony. Some have said that uh, there's a cloud over these Olympics, that China has come under fire globally because of policies and practices. In fact, the U.S. has issued a diplomatic boycott of these games, sending no officials here because of human rights. In particular, China's treatment of the minority Uyghur population in the Xinjiang region. Andy, the U.S. has come right out and called it genocide. Savannah, this is obviously the most sensitive issue at the Olympics. Western governments, the White House, human rights groups, allege that the Chinese government is engaged in a systematic repression of Muslim Uyghurs in Xinjiang. They allege that this is a massive program of social engineering aimed at suppressing Muslim Uyghur culture, language, tradition, identity. They allege a host of human rights abuses, forced labor, coercive birth control practices, indoctrination, and that all this adds up to a form of cultural genocide. It has to be said that the Chinese government emphatically denies all of this. They say that accusations of genocide are the lie of the century. All right. So the genocide becomes cultural genocide. Walter, did you catch that? It's genocide, which typically we think, okay, like in World War II, genocide, six million Jews killed by the Nazis, the Jews killed in Germany and Eastern Europe and in Ukraine and Soviet Union, you know, especially in Poland. But now this is cultural genocide. So, you know, Walter, if you think about the United States, for instance, The United States actually committed genocide against the indigenous populations. And then in the 20th century, the United States created the American Indian boarding schools where students were separated from their families. They were punished if they spoke their native languages. I mean, a true sort of ethnic cleansing culturally by these vicious American Indian boarding schools. This is known history. I mean, it's never talked about. 
in the U.S. media, but this happened to millions of indigenous people in the United States, actual genocide, and then the ongoing cultural so-called assimilation, which is a cultural genocide against indigenous people. And then you think about also the U.S. track record on other forms of extreme racism and national oppression. I mean, Tommy Smith and John Carlos when in 1968 at the Mexico City Games in the middle of the struggle for civil rights and black liberation, when they, when they dared to raise their fist up on the podium in silent protest, they were expelled from the Olympic Games. They were expelled from the U.S. Olympic team simply because they put their fist up in solidarity with their people who were fighting for civil rights in the United States, the land of slavery and apartheid. I mean, if you think about the track record here of the United States in these, I don't know how these reporters and anchor people can talk with a straight face as if the U.S. is the moral guardian of the rights of minority people. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, there's so many different layers of hypocrisy to the position of the U.S. government and the U.S. mainstream media on this issue. Um, just to throw in two others. One, you know, the United States has appointed itself, you know, not just the guardian of human rights around the world, but in this case, specifically of the rights of Muslims to practice their religion. I mean, that is beyond ridiculous for the U.S. government to assume that posture, considering the unbelievable devastation that the U.S. has wrought in majority Muslim countries, I mean, for many, many decades, but especially since September 11th, with the invasions of Afghanistan, Iraq, wreaking havoc in Syria, Libya, Somalia. It's just ridiculous. And of course, that was accompanied by extreme anti-Muslim racism and repression and mass surveillance of Muslims here in the United States. So that's a ridiculous element of the U.S. position. And another is that, you know, a lot of these same right-wing pundits and right-wing media outlets that are spending the bulk of their Olympics coverage just denouncing the policies of the government of China, I mean, those were the same people who are denouncing Colin Kaepernick for, you know, politicizing sports where sports should be apolitical, right? Unnecessarily bringing politics into sports by taking a knee and protesting police killing of Black people, which inspired many other players across the NFL and in different sports as well. That movement was completely denounced, totally denounced by the right wing who said, oh, you shouldn't be politicizing sport. But now here they are when it's China, right? And, and these are, again, you know, imagined human rights abuses that China is supposedly carried out as opposed to very real human rights abuses carried out by U.S. cops. Now, all of a sudden, that's fine. You can mix politics and sports in their view. And also, I, we have to point out that Guantanamo Bay. These people have not been charged with anything. They're not really even accused of anything. But every single prisoner at Guantanamo Bay, where they were all tortured, they were all Muslim. You know, it just reminds me that in terms of the the Olympics, you know, we have to really remind people and tell people, Brian, about the history of the region where the Uyghur people are and the history that the United States used to play in kind of agreeing with the need to de-radicalize or to keep in check people who were joining radical movements or terrorist movements around the globe. And now when it's convenient, which is so cynical, they want to target China as if they are doing something out of the norm. 
You know, the when I'm thinking about the Olympics and genocide, the Nazi regime in Germany, which did commit genocide, you know, they had the Olympics in 1936. And there's all that talk about how Jesse Owens, Black American, representing the United States, went to Germany and, and sort of in the name of freedom, stood up to Hitler and won four gold medals, the 100 meters, the long jump, the 200 meters, a relay. And Jesse Owens, the retelling of this history is that Jesse Owens was like sort of, he confronted Hitler. Well, you know, that too is really something when, when Jesse Owens came back to the United States, because it was a society based on racial supremacy, by white racist supremacy, white supremacy, where in huge parts of the country, Jesse Owens couldn't walk into a motel. He couldn't walk into an emergency room if he was sick. I mean, and the United States is all about, you know, fighting against genocide. Well, by the way, Jesse Owens, you know, there's all that talk about Jesse Owens was snubbed by Hitler because Hitler was such a racial supremacist. When Jesse Owens came back, he you know, four gold medals. First time anybody had done that for the United States. Was he asked to come to the White House? No. Did he receive a telegram from FDR in the, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt White House? No. Jesse Owens was completely snubbed by the United States government. And Roosevelt, who was the liberal, invited all the white Olympians to the White House, but not Jesse Owens, who won four gold medals. I mean, when you think about America's actual, quote, track record, so to speak, on racism and its treatment of, quote, minority peoples, close quote, I mean, for the United States government or its echo chamber in the mainstream media to be on its high horse denouncing and condemning China, among all of its other faults, it breeds racism against Asian people and Chinese people in particular. It breeds arrogance and American exceptionalism. And at the very moment that it's becoming illegal or efforts are being made to make it illegal to teach the true history of the United States, which includes genocide of indigenous people and slavery, here you have U.S. commentators and media and all the big networks like NBC going out of their way to condemn the People's Republic of China. The other component here is that, you know, the United States said a while ago, well, we're, you know, we're going to have a diplomatic boycott of the Olympics. And I think, Brian, that's such a good point that you mentioned earlier that (laughs) there's a a genocide going on, apparently, but the only thing they're going to do is not have officials go. But, you know, they're still sending athletes. But I, I think the other part of this is what the coverage has been like on that. I haven't actually seen anyone mention the fact that there are 90 countries participating and that the majority of them, of course, have opted not to join a diplomatic boycott of the games. And I was reading in particular this article covered by Yahoo News that I think is out of The Independent, and they list 14 countries boycotting out of 90. But again, they don't say out of 90. And then also some of the ones that they list are specifically noted that they are because of the coronavirus. One of them that I really wanted to highlight just to highlight, you know, the way that this kind of stuff is written and how I guess nobody asked questions about it. Quote, Slovenian President Borut Pahor said he wouldn't attend the opening ceremony due to COVID, unquote. So, again, this was a list of countries who would are supposedly joining a diplomatic boycott of the games due to so-called human rights abuses. But they took Slovenian president saying he wouldn't go, not anyone else, but he wouldn't go. And it was because of COVID. That's, you know, obviously a deeply different thing. 
Yeah, I was I was trying to get Brian to tell us more because I know he knows this history about the true history of the the region where the Uyghurs are and how China has had to try to just like every country has had to deal with, you know, the rise of terrorism and the way that they have dealt with it as opposed to what the European countries have done, what the United States has done. But, you know, when we think about the execution of the ISIS leader last week in Syria, for example, and the various reports that are coming out now about the number of civilians killed in that attack and the kind of differing reportage about that, that just shows you that, you know, this war on terror, so-called war on terror is going on around the world. And the reporting is not giving this larger context to how China has chosen to, to deal with radicalism in the region where the Uyghurs live. Yeah, I mean, Al-Qaeda is obviously, and you can tell because there's Uyghur contingents fighting against the Assad government in Syria. And of course, the United States very famously had arrested a group of Uyghurs and held them in Guantanamo, again, without charges. That doesn't mean that any of them are guilty of anything. But obviously, this is a thing. You know, in 2019, 22, mostly Western countries under the influence of the United States signed a letter to the United Nations condemning China. And a day later, 37 other countries issued their own letter, 37. And half of those countries, half of the signatories of the 37 countries that were defending China's policies in Xinjiang, half of them, more than half of them, were Muslim countries or Muslim-majority countries. That included Pakistan, Qatar, Syria, the United Arab Emirates, even Saudi Arabia. These countries who are also impacted by al-Qaeda actually were defending China's policies in Xinjiang, in the western part of China, where there are many minority peoples. The Uyghurs are amongst them. But, you know, the people I've talked to, the people who have gone to Xinjiang, the people who have studied the issue, and I would recommend people read Deng Xiang news every week, the Deng Xiang newsletter. I mean, mosques are being built. The population is actually increasing instead of diminishing. I mean, that's an unusual statistical indice for a genocide if the population numbers are actually going up in recent years. There's no evidence. And so the U.S. sort of balances this language of genocide. Savannah Guthrie says to Andy Brown, the U.S. says it's genocide. And he says, well, there's systematic repression. There's this, there's this, there's this. And it all amounts to cultural genocide. Again, if it was an actual genocide, if there was actual genocide going on, and the only punishment that the United States was willing to impose on the People's Republic of China was to not send some politicians and diplomats to the games, that would show the United States doesn't actually care that much about genocide. But if genocide is basically a talking point or basically a stick with which the United States can beat China over the head, then these sort of calibrated responses to, quote, genocide, close quote, actually make sense because it's not about genocide. I want to go on to another part of the loathsome coverage by the capitalist-owned media of the Olympic Games. Of course, while the U.S. is engaged in a diplomatic boycott, that's not true about Russia. And as the United States targets China and Russia 
and has reorganized its own military doctrine such that the United States is now preparing to go to war or engage in major power conflict, of course, with Russia and China, those two countries are coming closer and closer together. In fact, not only is Vladimir Putin in Beijing, but there's meetings going on between China and the leadership of Russia. And again, the United States, when you think about the way this is branded, the way these leaders are discussed, it says so much. Anyway, there's another audio clip. It's Andy Brown, who's with Savannah Guthrie. It's again, this is the very opening of the Olympic ceremony. This is how they're talking. Let's listen. China is determined to go ahead with these games in the middle of a pandemic to showcase its competence, its high-tech prowess, and its state power. There will be geopolitics. Watch out for the two most powerful authoritarians in the world in the VIP box sitting side by side. Chinese President Xi Jinping, Russian President Vladimir Putin. They have a close relationship. They formed an axis of power to challenge the United States. Axis of power. Sounds like George W. Bush 20 years ago in the axis of evil, Iran, Iraq, North Korea. That was right before the U.S. invaded Iraq, of course, and we talked about that last week. I want to play another audio clip because the commentators are suggesting this is coverage of a sporting event. Let's not forget that. This is the Olympics sporting event, international competition, the thrill and drama, the thrill of victory, the agony of defeat, all of these kind of things that you associate with the Olympics. But let's listen to how the NBC commentary in the beginning of the opening ceremony continues. Will Russia attack Ukraine? One of the big questions hanging over these Olympics is whether Putin will send his armies and his tanks into Ukraine while the competition is going on. And if he does that, will Xi Jinping support him? If that happens, we could be living in a very different world. Yeah, if that happens, except one little thing there, Andy, it's not going to happen. I mean, what? Vladimir Putin, the head of state, is going to watch the Olympics and at the same time send his armies into Ukraine in order to launch a war that will undoubtedly become not simply a war between two countries, but and not even a regional confrontation, but a global conflict. Yeah, Putin and Xi Jinping are watching the Olympics. And at that moment, Walter, they're planning the invasion of Ukraine. And if it should happen... This is going to be a very, very different world, we learned from Andy Brown. I mean, what a, what a ridiculous fantasy. Like, that is not going to happen. I mean, the only way that there's going to be a war in Ukraine is if the United States and the other NATO powers does something absolutely wild to provoke it. I mean, that is just something to essentially create a state of frenzy and hysteria among the populations of the United States and the NATO countries to essentially prepare the ground in the event that they do decide to take such hostile action against Russia. And of course, to also prepare public opinion for the long term for this sort of long haul, quote unquote, strategic competition that they have in mind against Russia and, and against China as well. I mean, that that meeting that you mentioned, I think was is highly significant, the big summit between Xi and Putin. 
Xi has been staying physically in China since the coronavirus pandemic began. And so this was the first time that he met face-to-face with Putin since that happened. Uh, the alliance is, of course, extremely important because you know both countries are major world economic and military powers. They're both permanent members of the UN Security Council, and they're the principal targets of US imperialism and its junior partners. So, you know, some of the big takeaways from that meeting, which produced a really important joint statement at the end of it, but essentially Putin backed Xi on China's core issues and Xi backed Putin on Russia's core issues. So for Russia, that meant that Xi fully endorsed the Russian position on the crisis in Ukraine. They took the position, they mutually took the joint position that the cause of the crisis is NATO's constant expansion eastward and that there needs to be assurances that that will stop. That's the way to defuse the crisis. Uh, And then Putin backed China's position on Taiwan, asserting their support for China's claims of sovereignty, which are, of course, completely historically founded, claims of sovereignty over Taiwan and opposition to U.S. efforts to support Taiwan independence forces, groups that want to completely sever forever all ties between Taiwan and mainland China. They also agreed to a major energy supply deal. That's related to what's going on in Ukraine because one of the key issues is if there is a war that breaks out, what happens to the massive Russian oil and gas shipments to Europe that Europe is dependent on? Finding alternate markets in China is a long-term strategic priority of Russia, and China has agreed to buy a lot of it. And then in that joint statement, they sort of also lay out a philosophy of international politics underpinning their alliance, underpinning the alliance between Russia and China. It's not ideological. Russia is a capitalist country. China is a socialist country. But it is on the basis of opposition to a unipolar world order, right? Opposition to a world order where the U.S. and the U.S. alone dominates uh, and in its place support for a quote-unquote multipolar order where each country has sovereignty. So, So this is a quote from the statement. They call for the establishment of a new kind of relationship between world powers on the basis of mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and mutually beneficial cooperation. Russia and China reiterate the need for consolidation, not division of the international community, the need for cooperation, not confrontation, The sides oppose the return of international relations to the state of confrontation between major powers when the weak fall prey to the strong. And by the state of confrontation between major powers, they mean the new Cold War. So I think this was a highly consequential meeting and statement that came out of it. So interesting. 72 years ago, Mao Zedong was in Moscow meeting with uh, Joseph Stalin right after in the months after the Chinese Revolution was victorious after Mao had made the famous speech on October 1st, 1949 at Tiananmen Square, where he announced that China has stood up, meaning the Chinese people are going to reunify their country. They're going to overcome foreign domination that had divided and humiliated China for 100 years. And they were going to begin the path of building socialism. So Mao and Stalin were together. They signed the Soviet-China Friendship Treaty And for the next 10 years, the Soviet Union and China were allies. So here we are 70 years later. In the intervening period, China and the Soviet Union became political opponents. And then that political division 
ended up into a state-to-state dispute. And then the United States reached out to China, began to allow China to be integrated into the world economy because the United States was trying to play China off of the Soviet Union. But then once the Soviet Union collapses in 1991, once the Soviet Union is no more and the socialist camp is gone, the United States assumes and adopts this new strategy, which is, hey, we are the only superpower left in the world. We're the only ones still standing. So we're going to destroy any government that attempts to be independent, attempts to be sovereign, attempts to defy the empire. So they go to war against Iraq. They invade Somalia under the pretext of a famine that was in 1992. They bomb Yugoslavia. They invade Afghanistan in 2001. They go to war against Iraq in 2003. They destroy the government of Libya in 2011. They think they're going to do the same against the Assad government in Syria. And during that intervening period, China actually becomes independent. It becomes strong economically. Russia gets back on its feet. And so now the United States says, hey, we have to destroy them too, except China and Russia are major powers. They both have nuclear weapons. The Russian military has 1.4 million members. Russia has 5,000 nuclear weapons. The Putin government or whatever government is in Russia is not going to allow Russia to be dismembered and broken apart, nor will any Chinese leader. And as a consequence, even though Russia is no longer led by a communist party and the Soviet Union is no more, on the basis of combined or well-understood joint mutual national interests, the Soviet-China friendship agreement that was signed in 1950 has reemerged, not as an ideological agreement, as you pointed out, Walter, but as an agreement between two nations who have a common foe. That's the outcome, again, the unthought-through outcome of U.S. foreign policy, where it wants to bully and dominate all the other countries in the world or destroy their governments if they choose to be defiant and resistant to American demands. I also paid close attention to the part where they were pushing back on this idea that just the United States or Europe has the right to define what democracy is. (laughs) It kind of goes back to some of the hypocritical and the hypocrisy you were talking about earlier, just a few minutes ago. And so they talk about in the statement, quote, that both of their countries have, quote, longstanding historical examples of democratic institutions. And they say, quote, Russia and China as world powers with rich cultural and historical heritage have longstanding traditions of democracy, which rely on thousand years of experience of development, broad popular support and consideration of the needs and interests of citizens. And then it goes on to say Russia and China guarantee their people the right to take part through various means and in various forms in the administration of the state and in public life in accordance with the law. And I couldn't help but think about just the idea of even how COVID's been treated. You know, who has who has a right to health care, who has a right to education, you know, who has a right to housing, and just some of the basic things that I consider part of a democratic country or a democratic system. But that was important to me that they push back on this because that's what they're always talking about. You know, listen to the people over the weekend on the Sunday news shows that, you know, we're the, we're the democracy. We're the ones who tell everyone else what democracy is. Yeah, Esther, I mean, I think that's so important because, you know, very rarely do people in the United States get to hear 
the leaders of the targeted demonized countries in their own words, because, you know, if we hear them without the filter of the warmongering corporate media, it doesn't actually sound that scary. It doesn't sound that scary. Let, let me just read some more from that statement. So, for instance, Putin and Xi call on all states to pursue dialogue and mutual trust, strengthen mutual understanding, champion such universal human values as peace, development, equality, justice, democracy, and freedom, respect the rights of peoples to independently determine the development paths of their countries and the sovereignty and the security and development interests of states. The sides share the understanding that democracy is a universal human value rather than a privilege of a limited number of states and that its promotion and protection is a common responsibility of the entire world community. The sides believe that democracy is a means of citizens' participation in the government of their country with a view to improving the well-being of population and implementing the principle of popular government. Democracy is exercised in all spheres of public life as part of a nationwide process and reflects the interests of all the people, its wills, guarantees its rights, meets its needs, and protects its interests. There's no reason to be afraid of this. The United States elite, the military, the Pentagon brass, the military-industrial complex, senators, big banks on Wall Street, they're really scared that U.S. power is declining in the world. But people of the United States, workers in the United States, have no reason to fear a world order that's based on those types of values, right? I mean, in fact, that's not just Xi and Putin coming up with things out of thin air. Uh, This is essentially a restatement of the Charter of the United Nations. I mean, this is the founding document of the UN that lays out these same basic principles of sovereignty, equality, democracy, justice, human rights. These are not big, scary, radical ideas. Right. And they're saying that we want the U.N. and these institutions to be central, not this so-called rules-based order that, you know, where the United States makes the rules. All right. Let's go on to another story. Chris Christie, who was the governor of New Jersey, who was an acolyte of Donald Trump, but has broken from Donald Trump in the recent period. He said, Esther, that Donald Trump told the truth, but it was by mistake. And of course, I'm going to quote what he's talking about and then get you to say a little bit more about this. Here's Trump. Actually, what they are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. That's Donald Trump talking about Mike Pence could have overturned the election. Chris Christie is saying Trump actually told the truth finally, but he did it by mistake. Right. So that was two Saturdays ago at his most recent rally in Texas near Houston. And remember last month, he he held a rally in Arizona where he claimed that white people are at the back of the line for COVID-19 vaccines and treatments. Well, at this rally, in addition to these statements you just said, he said that if he was elected again as president, that he would consider pardoning those prosecuted for attacking the U.S. Capitol last January 6th. And he called on his supporters to mount very large protests in Atlanta and New York and D.C. if the investigations of him by prosecutors in those cities led to charges or indictments against him. He said, quote, if I run and I win, we will treat those people from January 6th fairly. We will treat them fairly. And if it requires pardons, we will give them pardons because they are being treated 
so unfairly. And so we might remember that in a recent poll, half of the Republicans said that those who attacked the Capitol on January 6th were patriots. And as president, Trump already pardoned Steve Bannon, who worked as his campaign strategist and was a White House advisor, who was actually later charged with defrauding Trump's own donors in a scheme to build a wall, like build the wall, build the wall along the Mexican border. And the other thing that you already mentioned is that at the same rally, Trump said that Pence had the power to, quote unquote, overturn the election. And the statement, most of the press talked last week about how this was the first time that Trump had actually described his goal on January 6th as overturning the election. But then he went on to talk about, you know, his usual false statements about electoral fraud and suggesting that he didn't believe that the election was legitimate. So, and then he says that, you know, it's obvious that he in particular goes after these prosecutors. And I think that all the prosecutors in Atlanta, New York, and here in Washington, D.C. are Black. And so he says, quote, if these radical, vicious, racist prosecutors do anything wrong or corrupt, we are going to have in this country the biggest protests we have ever had, end quote. And then he urged his supporters, like I said, to organize large protests in these cities. And um, in an update after this rally, the prosecutor in Atlanta, Fonnie Willis, she called on the FBI to provide security to the courthouse and government buildings in that city. And she cited January 6th as one reason why she was calling for the security. And remember that a judge recently approved her request to impanel a grand jury to look into Trump's possible, you know, interference in the 2020 presidential election. And, you know, they have him on tape, you know, telling the then secretary of state that, you know, he just needed him to find him X number of votes to overturn the election. So, you know, we're going to continue to watch that investigation. Donald Trump felt that he had the right to overturn the election, even though it's a constitutionally mandated process, because Donald Trump thinks it's always about him. Like he always believes that no matter what, no matter what the rules are, Donald Trump should be able to prevail. I mean, let's never forget that Donald Trump started receiving money from his very rich and racist father, Fred Trump, By the time he was three years old, he had hundreds of thousands of dollars. By the time he was eight, Donald Trump was a millionaire, right? By the time he was eight, because his father kept giving him bigger and bigger cash amounts. So this is a person who has gone through his entire life having whatever it is that he wants. And then he took over the family business and ran it as his personal dictatorship. Each time the business failed, he found another bank to bail him out. He said, I love debt. Because as long as he could keep going and as long as the big banks kept, you know, basically giving him whatever he wanted, he could do whatever he wanted. And then he lost the election. And he his argument is, I shouldn't have lost the election. It's unfair. It's unfair to me. I'm going to be the president. And also, of course, he was fearing that all of his financial crimes would become the basis for criminal prosecutions of him and his children after he left the White House, where he would also leave his immunities. So here you have a situation where, for the last year, he was insisting that 
Mike Pence overturned the election. And Mike Pence was actually a minority voice within the Republicans in Congress, I believe, because Mike Pence wouldn't do it. He was afraid to do it. And finally, 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 after all of this taunting by Trump and his supporters who were chanting, hang Mike Pence on January 6th, Mike Pence, Esther, has finally come out and said Donald Trump is wrong. He didn't have the right to overturn the election, that the election belongs to the American people, that it's un-American for anybody to think that the election process actually belongs to them. But I believe that while he's been you know, very subservient to Trump and acting as a supplicant and afraid to speak up and speak out against Trump, I think Pence actually put his finger on it. Donald Trump actually believes that if he wants to be elected, he should be elected. And that's that. I think the other thing that's happened since we since our last show was the RNC basically endorsing that idea. Really, (laughs) they basically have censured the two Republicans on the House committee investigating January 6th, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, and basically said that the January 6th insurrection was a legitimate form of speech. (laughs) So, you know, all of these recent incidents, you know, I think mark a real ratcheting up of the the rhetoric within the RNC and with the Republican Party, but also a real shift, you know, another wave where it's kind of shifting further and further right and becoming really a Trump party and not really, you know, just a a party that is ostensibly about, you know, democracy or whatever they're supposed to be about. Trump just described Vice President Pence as being, quote, an automatic conveyor belt to get Biden elected president as quickly as possible, unquote, which I mean, come on, that's like obviously not true. Like Pence did nearly everything that Trump wanted him to do during their four years. And Brian, just to back up what you were saying, too, I mean, in this statement, Trump also says about Pence having the authority to change the results, quote, I was right and everyone knows it, unquote. I mean, it's just (laughs) so childlike. You know, one other interesting thing that came out of the RNC meeting, they voted in favor of a rule to prohibit Republican candidates from participating in presidential debates, or at least presidential debates organized by the Commission on Presidential Debates, which has organized all of them. That's a private corporation, but it was, I think it's significant that these sort of like these consensus ruling class institutions and rules are not being respected by one of the two major ruling class parties, right? Like everybody agreed that the vice president can't just decide to overturn the election result, right? Like now, all of a sudden, that's something that inexplicably or actually explainably is controversial. The Commission on Presidential Debates, right? totally non-controversial among ruling class political parties, in large part because they restricted participation to just Republicans and Democrats. Now the Republicans pulling out of that because it's, you know, allegedly rigged. I think it says something serious about the state of like intra-elite relations in U.S. politics right now. Yes, very important point. As we've said in the past, when we quoted Karl Marx and Frederick Engels in the Communist Manifesto written In 1848, they have this argument, I'm paraphrasing, that the role of the executive or the modern executive in the modern state is to manage the common affairs of the bourgeoisie. So the point of having a capitalist government is it takes care of the bourgeoisie's 
collective aggregated interests. There may be divisions, there may be contradictions, there always are in capitalism, there's competition. That's a feature of capitalism. But the ruling class as a ruling entity, as a ruling force, has to have an executive around which there's certain rules and a certain discipline of that rule such that individual interests or small group interests or the interests of a particular faction don't dominate over the common interests of the bourgeoisie. And Donald Trump was really opposed by most of the capitalist class when he was running in 2016 because they knew that Trump only cares about himself. He only cares about his own interests. But what's happened is because of the way the Democratic Party unsuccessfully challenged Trump and actually challenged him on the worst possible basis and actually a right-wing basis alleging that Trump was bad because he was an agent of Vladimir Putin, Trump's political base actually strengthened. And here we are in 2022, six years after Trump you know, was one of 16 contenders in the Republican primaries in 2016, and Trump really does control the Republican Party. And the reason he controls it is not because the rest of the bourgeois forces inside the Republican Party believe that he's the best man for the job, so to speak. They support him because he's got the support of the base of the Republican Party. His demagoguery has been successful. And so the other Republican politicians who probably actually hate Trump won't say anything against Trump and instead are censoring people like Cheney and others who dared to take Trump on because they know that Trump has a big political base. So this sort of maxim of ruling class politics that the executive has to sort of function for the entire bourgeoisie has been basically undone by the element of Trump or Trumpism in modern day politics. And so the United States has two right-wing parties, the Republican Party, which is more and more just the white party and the party of white supremacy openly. And then there is the Democratic Party, which by all standards, say European standards or advanced capitalist economy or country standards, the Democratic Party would be at best a center-right party, but two right-wing parties But of course, the Democratic Party is racially and socially diverse, where the Republican Party is really truly becoming the white party and can only retain its its hold on power at the state level or at the federal level, either by gerrymandering or by suppressing the vote of black and Latino people or others. Again, we have a situation, Walter, where, and I believe you're right, there has been a destabilization of elite politics in America, which doesn't mean we will necessarily have, at least in the short term, a progressive outcome. The rise of the far right is real. Anybody who minimizes that is really doing a disservice. But at the same time, if we as socialists are looking for revolutionary, radical transformation, we also realize that part of this process is the destabilization of elite politics. With that said, Nicole, there's another destabilizing element in American politics, of course, and polarizing element in American politics, and that's COVID. Now we're about to hit a new benchmark. Yeah, we hit 900,000 deaths from COVID. The death toll is now over 900,000 as of February 4th, which was last Friday. 
just an astonishing, astonishing level of not only people who have died from this pandemic, but, you know, it's not that the U.S. isn't capable. It certainly seems a lot more like it's the U.S. government deciding that this isn't a priority, that dealing with COVID, you know, making sure that people have the right information that they need, making sure that people have access to all of the tools and services that they need, including healthcare. you know, that just hasn't happened. We just haven't seen that happen. And we've talked a lot about that on this show over the past two years. But, I, you know, I think the 900,000 mark, I mean, is really quite a tall mark to reach at this point. When the United States reached 800,000 deaths, that was back in mid-December, the most recent 100,000 deaths, so the deaths between 700 and 8,000, that had occurred in less than 11 weeks, which already is seems like a very short period of time when you think about it. This time, since mid-December, when the U.S. reached 800,000 deaths, it's been only seven weeks, seven weeks for 100,000 people to not only get COVID, but die. And federal data also shows that the vast majority of the people who have died from this in the United States have been unvaccinated people, which gets a lot to what you were just talking about, Brian, what we've addressed on the show about the stark division and the way that Donald Trump really started us off, started off the country in this horrendous direction when the pandemic first started, you know, spreading this narrative about vaccine not working, about being skeptical of things like that, of, of things like a vaccine when the rest of the world is anxiously awaiting, actively, you know, desperately trying to create or get vaccine, you know, vaccines for their people. Just really, really, really disgusting number to hit. And the United States will hit a million in not very many weeks, I'm sure. If it was 11 weeks between 700 and 800,000 and just seven weeks between 800 and 900, I'm sure the United States will hit a million before the summer. Yeah. And one of the, it's it's such a tragic figure, the the 900,000 dead. And so many of the unvaccinated are making up a bigger and bigger part of the death toll. You have forces in the United States, mostly right wing, a few errant left-wing forces or so-called left-wing forces who are proselytizing that the vaccines are just a big government conspiracy to create a surveillance state or to take away individual liberties or to condition people to accept government dictates. And so all of these protests against mask wearing or mask mandates or vaccine mandates, I mean, really another sign of the in a way, the dissolution of core parts of, you know, bourgeois society stability. I mean, the government mandates we stop at red lights in our cars. It mandates that we wear seatbelts. It mandates that we have driver's licenses to drive a car. It mandates that we have car insurance when we drive a car. When we travel internationally, there's a mandate that we have a passport and that's true for all countries. And that passport, whenever you come back into the country or go into another country, that passport and its chip reader is able to inform the customs office of this country or any country exactly where we've been. There was a mandate for kids going to school, young kids to be vaccinated for measles, mumps, chickenpox. That's how we got rid of it. Polio, earlier smallpox. I mean, when you think of all of the social and economic issues plaguing capitalist society, the idea that the biggest crime of the government is trying to ultimately and finally introduce things that have some protection for the population against this terrible epidemic. I mean, this week I got a test 
a COVID test mailed to my home from the U.S. government two years after the beginning of COVID. And instead of denouncing and condemning the government for not having COVID tests to everybody right away, for not tracking and tracing the disease, for not having enough equipment and ventilators and all of the things that were in such you know dire shortage over the years, we have other forces saying, really, the problem is vaccines or vaccine mandates or mask mandates. A real indictment of bourgeois society and bourgeois politics, a really sorry state of affairs. Yeah. And Brian, we've talked a little bit in in previous weeks, but I want to bring it up again, especially based on our Olympics coverage. You know, the New York Times in their myriad articles about the Olympics has one, of course, about China's zero COVID policy. And I want to read a short bit of it. Quote, China's strategy would obviously not be possible in a country that emphasizes individual rights as much as the United States does. But China's strategy does show what a society can do when it makes the prevention of COVID its number one priority, almost regardless of the side effects, unquote. So, you know, the side effects, of course, are like living, not dying and people living and people not dying. I don't know if I need to say that one again. But, you know, the other really insidious piece of this I think really relates to what you were just saying. This article says, I'll just read that again. Um, It essentially is saying the United States emphasizes individual rights. Therefore, we could never have mass vaccines. We could never have lockdowns and contact tracing when necessary, when we now know very clearly that that is the way to prevent COVID from spreading. But all those issues you just mentioned, having a, a driver's license, to be able to drive? Isn't that an individual right that I'm infringing on? Your individual right to drive your car, no matter the fact that you don't know how to drive it? You know, what about having a passport? Like you said, doesn't that infringe on someone's individual right to be able to fly around anywhere they want to go without, you know, anyone asking who they are? All of these things that we take for granted that we sort of, you know, are just the way that we exist in the world, those are all fine. But when we have a pandemic, unlike something we've ever seen, where 900,000 people have now unnecessarily died in the United States, now all of a sudden, the, the one very clear tool that we have that, you know, doesn't cause hardship for people, that's the thing that people are coming out in droves to protest against. And it's not, you know, it's not in droves in most places. And it's not the majority of the American public by a long shot. But it obviously is a massive problem right now. All right. We have a couple other stories. I know time is running short. Again, another terrible racist killing again in Minneapolis, Nicole, and people are in the streets. Last Wednesday, Minneapolis police went into the apartment of Amir Locke and within 10 seconds, they shot him dead. They had a key, they had a search warrant, but he wasn't named in the original search warrant. Some of this information is still coming out, but he wasn't named in the search warrant. The Minneapolis police SWAT team, again, used a key to enter the apartment. And one of the cops reaches out with his foot and shoves the sofa that Amir Locke is very asleep, covered in a blanket. He's asleep on the couch, covered in a blanket. And the cop shoves the sofa with his foot. Meanwhile, there's several police you know, in SWAT gear who are standing over the couch with their guns drawn. Imagine that scene. You're waking up violently jarred by somebody shoving a couch that you're sleeping on, and then you see guns in your face. And he grabs a gun, allegedly, and points it at the officers. So he's shot. He gets two bullets to his chest, one in his wrist, and there's a number, you can hear a number of bullets in the sliver of video that has been released. And absolutely, people have been protesting, have been out in the streets, did a car caravan, and they, and they drove 
to the head of the Minneapolis Police Department to his house to demand justice for Amir Locke. Amir Locke was 22. He was in his apartment. It was before 7 a.m. So they had their guns drawn, shot several times, two bullets hitting him in his chest, one in his wrist. And they say that he drew a gun as well. Well, the Minneapolis Police Department also put out photos of the gun that they say he held. And the gun that they say he held was registered to him. So it seemed to be like this was an assassination of character. Like, look, he has a gun in the house. Well, it was registered to him, first of all. And, you know, second of all, again, they announced who they were, but it was within 10 seconds that they shot him and shot him dead. This is, by the way, Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, where in the the same region where Jamar Clark, Philando Castile, Dante Wright, Justin Teagan, Kobe Heisler, where they were all killed by police. In fact, if you want to see the very long list of people who've been killed by police in the state of Minnesota, you can go to the website Communities United Against Police Brutality, and they have a 55-page document with five to 10, even a dozen names and cases on each page of people who were killed by police in the state of Minnesota. And of course, that's nowhere near complete. But the judge who issued the warrant, by the way, was also the same judge who presided over the case of Derek Chauvin. You know, it just it's yet another horrendous, disgusting and heartbreaking shooting, which the parents called an execution of a young black man in Minneapolis and the surrounding area. Yeah, that's the police. Shoot first, kill first, ask questions later or never at all. It just reminds me that 10 seconds. Tamir Rice, 12 years old, he had a toy gun. Police come in on him. He's out in a park. He's 12 years old, remember, in Ohio. And they killed him within two seconds of arrival. They waited exactly two seconds before they shot Tamir Rice dead. And he was a child playing with a toy gun. And by the way, the police there were exonerated. Absolutely, Brian. And I just want to mention, too, that thousands have been mobilizing, thousands gathered at the Hennepin County Government Center this past weekend in March to honor Amir Locke and to demand justice for Amir Locke and his family. So, you know, people are not sitting down taking this. People are not just standing by waiting to see if the so-called justice system will do anything. People are absolutely, you know, enraged by this and are fighting back and are putting pressure on the mayor to extend and keep a moratorium on the execution of no-knock warrants in Minneapolis. One twist in this story is that apparently the St. Paul Police Department asked for a warrant where the police would have to announce that they were coming in and the Minneapolis Police Department, who was going to be fulfilling this warrant, said, no, take it back, submit for a no-knock warrant. You know, essentially implying we won't we won't do this if we have to say who we are. I mean, just completely disgusting. Hmm. Yeah. Let's arrive like a death squad. And then if anybody tries to protect themselves, you can legitimately, quote unquote, shoot them dead. Let's go on to another story before we come to our last piece, which will be, of course, about the big stories on Liberation News. Amnesty International is not a radical organization. Amnesty International has been considered to be a moderate organization, or even worse, frequently echoing the line of U.S. foreign policy when it's targeting other countries. But Esther, the report from Amnesty International about Israeli apartheid against Palestinians damning. And I think it's very significant. That's right. And 
I couldn't help but think about this report while the U.S. and the corporate media was baying about cultural genocide in China. It was, and I watched the meet. I watched you know the news all weekend, totally silent on this major new, very damning report released last week by Amnesty International, and it designated Israel as an apartheid state and called for Israeli authorities to be held accountable in the International Criminal Court and by all countries of the world. Anyone who can do any business with Israel should consider it an apartheid state. And so just because not everyone will kind of be on the same page about this, you know, we know about the racist system of apartheid that existed in South Africa, you know, under which the black majority was held under a very genocidal system of repression. And I say that because, you know, half of the black children died before their fifth birthday. So that is eliminating a people and really eliminating their culture in addition to their culture, just their very lives. And because of the South African struggle, apartheid, meaning the institutionalized regime of oppression and domination by one racial group over another, this was recognized as a crime against humanity defined in the Rome Statute and the Apartheid Convention. So this amnesty report documents how Israeli how Israel institutes apartheid through massive seizures and destruction of Palestinian land and property, unlawful killings and random shootings and excessive force, the denial of water and the destruction of like sanitation facilities and imprisonment, family separation, and the denial of nationality and citizenship to Palestinians. And they say that these are components of a system of apartheid. So the report starts out describing what we all witnessed last year in May of 2021, the attempt to forcibly remove residents of Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem from their homes and how the state of Israel and military was enabling Jewish settlers, some coming from the United States, to go to Palestinian neighborhoods and communities and steal their homes. And, you know, because everyone remembers that famous video clip that went viral that really sparked the international solidarity movement last year of a Jewish man from New York who had been trying to steal a family's home in Sheikh Jarrah, saying that if, if I don't steal it, somebody else will. And so the report uses this like horrific example and this episode and the storming of the Al-Aqsa Mosque last year to show that these types of acts were not outliers, but examples of the cruel system of apartheid that at every level, you know, criminally represses Palestinians to benefit Jews. So just parenthetically, every time you hear about, you know, a new Israeli settlement in occupied Palestinian territory, understand that the context of that, because these homes are not only being built illegally, but they're being built on seized and stolen land, on the land where maybe homes were demolished or where maybe Palestinians were trying to grow olives or, you know, have their traditional communities that are constantly being uprooted and destroyed. So dispossession of land is one of the four major methods that Israel has used to create an apartheid state since 1948, the Nakba, when 800,000 Palestinians were forced from their villages by Israeli militias that killed an estimated 15,000 people. And they ethnically cleansed or destroyed 418 Palestinian towns and villages during that time. So, like I said, in addition to the dispossession of land, the report highlights three other weapons of Israeli apartheid. And I'll just go over them really quickly. 
After the land has been seized and stolen, Palestinians are fragmented into domains of control. You know, at the heart of this system is keeping Palestinians separated from each other into distinct territorial, legal, and administrative domains. And the one we know most about is Gaza, right? This is a densely populated area described as an open-air prison that is officially not even fit for human habitation with no clean water. And in that era, we have 2.5 million people living in this area that's been called an open-air prison. Okay, also, there are a system of laws and policies that keep Palestinians restricted to enclaves, subject to several measures that control their lives, and segregated from Jewish Israelis. And finally, the deliberate impoverishment of Palestinians, keeping them at great disadvantage in comparison to Jewish Israelis. Now, just going back to the home issue, the report describes how Palestinians are caught in this catch-22 situation. Israel requires them to obtain a permit to build or even erect a structure such as a tent. But unlike Israeli applicants, Israel rarely issues them a permit. Many Palestinians are forced to build without permits. Israel then demolishes Palestinian homes on the basis that they were built illegally. And this is from the report. Israel uses these discriminatory planning and zoning policies to create unbearable living conditions to force Palestinians to leave their homes to allow for the expansion of Jewish settlement. And so I encourage everyone to read the report. There's an example of a man they gave here who had his home demolished, but the report is at amnesty.org. And I think that even though, like you said, Brian, you know, Amnesty International is not a radical organization, a progressive organization. But I think that if many of us who have disagreed with so many of their reports in the past can read this one, you know, we need to use this research to advance the freedom movement for Palestinian people and to free Palestine. You know, unlike some of the other groups, you know, Amnesty International is a campaign organization. And throughout the report, there are ways kind of that you can click on to learn more and take action. And so, you know, it's definitely something that, you know, a tool that we can use to be in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And as I mentioned, Amnesty is also calling on the International Criminal Court to consider the crime of apartheid in its current investigation in the occupied Palestine territories and calls on all states to exercise universal jurisdiction to bring perpetrators of apartheid crimes to justice. And Amnesty is the third human rights organization to designate Israel an apartheid state after Human Rights Watch and Betsela. Walter, yesterday was the Liberation News website newsletter. What's, what are the big stories this week? Yeah, Brian, well, there were significant demonstrations in over 55 cities across the country last weekend to say no to war with Russia over the Ukraine crisis. That included a demonstration outside of the White House, which is, of course, especially symbolically important. You can go to liberationnews.org and check out a report from that action and the National Day of Action titled Protest Outside White House Joins 55-Plus Cities Demanding No War on Russia disband NATO. Another article that I wanted to highlight is titled Search for a New Justice, What Can Defeat the Threat from the Right-Wing Supreme Court? 
the search for a replacement after Justice Stephen Breyer announces retirement from the court is becoming a, a central political issue in the U.S. This article delves into that. And finally, I want to highlight an uh, article titled Messages of Solidarity and Cuba's Statement Marking 60 Years of the U.S. Blockade. The people of Cuba have endured the suffocating criminal U.S. blockade of their country, cutting Cuba off from the rest of the world, all trading partners. This article has video messages from several leading activists, including Gloria Lariva, Gerardo Hernandez of the Cuban Five, video solidarity messages for an event organized by Radio Havana Cuba. You can check out these articles and a lot more updated daily on liberationnews.org. And at the top, you will find a link to sign up for our weekly newsletter. All right, we have a big week in front of us. We're going to be talking with Professor Richard Wolf, Marxist economist, about the anti-union activities of the New York Times and other media outlets. On Thursday, we come back with our segment called The Real Story. We're going to pick up our multi-part series on the history of the Soviet Union, the rise and fall of the Soviet Union, and the lessons for socialists. This will be episode four with Carlos Martinez. And then, Nicole, as you mentioned, on Monday, we will have our monthly seminar with patrons. And again, this is independent programming. We can only do the show, bring you this kind of content with the support of people who believe in the show or rely or like the show. So we encourage everyone to become a patron. You can do so by going to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. Subscribe to the show. Show us your support. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.